I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of the Gaza War, this time with Robert A. Pape, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in in international security studies. Robert was an influence on me in my teen years when I was trying to read and understand more about the issue of terrorism. His book, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, was particularly influential on me because it really helped me understand the political nature and logic of terrorism. Recently, he wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs entitled Israel's Failed Bombing Campaign in Gaza. Collective punishment won't defeat Hamas. That will form the basis of much of our conversation. We don't necessarily agree on every single point. You may have disagreements yourself with Professor Pape. However, I think this conversation is informative and enlightening, and I hope you'll enjoy it. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Robert A. Pape. Welcome to Parallax News. I guess that I'm very, very happy to have on. I was just telling him that his work was influential for me when I was just becoming interested in subjects like national security in my teenage years. Robert A. Pape is professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. He is perhaps most known for his work on 
Uh, global suicide terrorism, especially the publication Cutting the Fuse, the, expo the explosion of global suicide terrorism and how to stop it, as well as Dying to Win, the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. And he is the article of a recent piece in Foreign Affairs that I think is very important right now. Israel's failed bombing campaign in Gaza, collective punishment won't defeat Hamas. How are you doing? I'm doing great. If you could, I want to get into this foreign affairs piece, uh, but how do you see your work on uh, suicide terrorism and, and suicide bombing as potentially relating to what you're writing about in this foreign affairs piece? I know you talk about the logic of terrorism in the piece, so maybe we can get into that. Generally, for the last 30 years, I've been studying political violence. Uh, I've studied instruments that state, states use to try to reduce political violence. So I've studied the impact of strategic air power. I've studied economic sanctions. I've also studied uh, political violence from the side of the uh, those using political violence, the terrorist groups, and that's uh, dying to win and cutting the fuse. So in general, I've just kind of run the gambit of discussing and analyzing political violence. And um, both of these streams come together in the uh, situation we now face in Gaza. Do you want to talk about the, the relationship between uh, political violence and how, I suppose, part of your argument is that uh, the nature of this bombing campaign and how indiscriminate it is could actually help create uh, future uh, terrorists in Gaza. Can you explain why that would be for people that may be unfamiliar with this area of study? Yeah, I think that what uh, my studies of, say, strategic bombing in the 20th century and terrorists, uh, suicide bombers, all come from a political lens. And so even though we say, yes, you're studying political violence, a lot of times we forget just how political political violence is. And what that means is we often overestimate the ability of hard military power to stop the violence and underestimate the uh, use of hard military power that's counterproductive, that actually makes matters worse, produces more terrorists than it kills. And that's just because, although um, people, of course, quite concerned about their security when they face threats of violence from political actors, uh, in general, uh, governments, publics, we underestimate just how political political violence really is and how much it can be the case that using heavy military force can produce counterproductive effects that weaken security, make matters worse. Um, and of course, there are moral issues involved, but my work tends to focus really strictly on the strategic consequences and often the unproductive, unintended negative consequences of heavy uses of force. If you could, one of the things that gets mentioned in your piece is how uh, Prime Minister, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, likens the current campaign in Gaza to how the Allies uh, fought World War II. Um, and you sort of take, not that you take issue with that, but you say, well, you know, he's leaving a certain part unmentioned. Uh, and this gets into things like Dresden, Hamburg, et cetera. Can you speak to that? 
Uh, that's right. So, so my take on this is that the leaders of Israel um, are not so much wrong in comparing the current uh, their current campaign to the Allied campaign against Germany in World War II. Is they don't go far enough. They only talk about part, and they don't look at the strategic consequences of what really happened. Now. At first blush, there are some uh, notable uh, comparisons that are worth pointing out. Um, in the uh, Allied campaign against Germany in World War II, this heavily involved strategic bombing. Uh, this also involved a ground campaign. And what we see in Gaza is Israel has a, has a bombing campaign in addition to a ground campaign. Uh, we can also look at some comparative numbers here that are quite enlightening, I think. Um, so in the case of the Allied bombing of Germany, um, the Allied bombing picked out 90 German towns and cities, uh, and they bombed them for over three years. So from 1942, winter of 42, through February 1945. And if you looked at those 90 cities, uh, it's actually 92 that were bombed, you would see that the Allies destroyed 50% of the urban areas in those cities. Um, and that is pretty comparable to about the percentage of urban buildings, uh, buildings destroyed in Gaza, although it's happening at a much faster rate, just in a period of about two months. Um, and also, it's actually, as a percentage, even more intense in Gaza, because you see in Germany, Germany wasn't really all that um, urbanized in World War II, not anything like Gaza is today. And so all of that destruction only amounted to the destruction of 15% of all the buildings in in Germany in World War II. Whereas I said, what we're counting in Gaza is all of the buildings in Gaza, not just simply the buildings in narrowly Gaza City, for example. And so the destruction is quite, quite significant. Another key statistic you're, uh, that might be helpful for the listeners is the um, uh, is the number of civilians killed. So in Germany, the Allied bombing campaign killed a little over 300,000 German civilians out of a population of 70 million Germans in World War II. That's about one half of 1%. Well, as of now, about two months into the campaign in Gaza, the Israeli campaign has killed uh, 18,000 um, uh, Palestinian civilians that we know of. There's likely another several thousand buried under the rubble. Uh, and so that's 1% of the Palestinian population in Gaza. Uh, it's terribly important when we do these historical comparisons to recognize that Gaza is very, very, very small um, and very concentrated uh, compared to the other strategic bombing campaigns. And then if I might, just one more point of historical comparison um, is it's important to recognize that all of that heavy duty punishment of civilians in World War II in Germany um, led to very little strategic effects that the Allies were hoping for. The Allies were hoping, we know this from their planning documents, that this would shatter civilian morale, that they were hoping that uh, that Germany would reach a breaking point uh, where the population would not support the government or go into the military. We're hoping that there might be popular revolts and actually topple Hitler's government. None of that happened. And in fact, the more the bombing went on, 
the more the German population uh, signed up and went into the military and the more uh, civilian morale stiffened in support of the war effort, not the other way around. And unfortunately, we start we are, we see signs of this already happening in Gaza, where the by the opinion poll data that we have, Hamas is three times more popular today than it was before October 7th. And um, a lot of that is very likely due to uh, Hamas being the only force really standing up to uh, Israel's uh, military campaign in Gaza. I also wanted to add, you don't just make this comparison when it comes to uh, the Allied bombings in Germany, but you also say, you know, the same strategy didn't work for the Nazis uh, when they did the Blitz, the bombing campaign against London. You're quite right. So uh, my first book, uh, Bombing to Win, uh, looks at all the air campaigns in the 20th century, 40 strategic air campaigns at all, in all. And what you see is that um, there are varying degrees of civilian punishment in those 40 strategic bombing campaigns. But uh, no matter how heavily civilians are bombed, whether it's done lightly, heavily, uh, with sophisticated, calibrated strategies, or all at once in his concentrated efforts, those civilian bombing campaigns never produce a political effect of causing populations to rise up against their government or shattering civilian morale the way the uh, governments uh, and the leaders hope when they unleash those bombing campaigns. So what you're seeing here in Gaza uh, is you're seeing the normal failure of a very intense civilian punishment campaign that has been tried time after time after time. In fact, uh, Putin, in uh, Russia's leader, has tried the very same thing in Ukraine over the past few years. And all that um, Russian attack on Ukrainian cities, and whether it's with missiles or whether it's with shelling, from uh, ground forces is only stiffening the morale of the Ukrainians. You're getting more and more to sign up uh, and fight the Russians. And the reason for this is in all these campaigns, what happens is the civilian populations under the air attack get more terrified of occupation by the attacking bombing forces uh, because they are mercilessly bombing them. And so they become very, very, very fearful. My goodness, what's going to happen if they literally control my city block? And so the bombing itself produces a stiffening of, I call it the Pearl Harbor effect. You see, when the Japanese bombed uh, Pearl Harbor in, in World War II, this didn't cause America to collapse, as a lot of the Japanese leaders hoped. Um, it caused the opposite. Um, we, we redoubled, re-tripled our efforts, um, and we were mercilessly looking for revenge in the campaign that followed. At the beginning of your piece in Foreign Affairs, you bring up the question of I guess whether this is really about targeting Hamas or if there's, you know, other things going on. I mean, we saw that uh, Israeli intelligence ministry paper uh, sort of pushing for the idea of pushing the Gazan population into Egypt. Uh, should we be concerned about those issues? 
Well, well, I think it's important to know that. So I studied every strategic bombing campaign uh, in the 20th century. That's 40 strategic bombing campaigns at all. And I've studied all the bombing campaigns since. Um, and in all of the campaigns um, where there's really intense civilian punishment and, and the um, um, Israeli attack on Gaza is one of the most intense civilian punishment campaigns in history. Um, so in all of those campaigns, the governments at the time, as they are unleashing the attacks, all go to great lengths to tell their publics that they are targeting the war effort of the enemy or the military of the enemy. But see, in all those 40 air campaigns, I had the luxury of being able to get to the documents, uh, which were the American documents, the British documents, which were never destroyed uh, and all declassified. And I worked for three years for the U.S. Air Force. So I was able to and at the place, Montgomery Air Force Base, where the Air Force keeps their documents on this. So I was able to spend lots of time to collect all of the detailed documentation here on the actual real operational planning. And what you see when you get inside the planning is much, much less about the war effort in generalities and much more specifics where because there's actual attacks occurring city by city, in the case of Gaza, block by block, target by target, there will have to be rules of engagement, very detailed operational orders here. Um, and we can't really say for sure what those are right now. Um, so it could be that this heavy civilian punishment is a result of incompetence. I mean, after all, uh, it's the Netanyahu government that was so incompetent, it let its guard down to let October 7 even happen and then didn't respond for seven hours. I mean, this really quite stunning incompetence here uh, uh, in Israel. I mean, it should only take 15 minutes for special forces helicopters to respond to this. Uh, um, so incompetence, we cannot really rule out. Um, and as you mentioned, deliberate plans as precursors to serious ethnic cleansing can't be ruled out either as a possible explanation, because we have concept papers by ministers in Netanyahu's own cabinet that are laying out in detail uh, the military operations starting in northern Gaza, going to the south, and then the details within that, which look exactly like the public manifestations of what we're seeing here, where the goal ultimately uh, in the concept paper is to have the entire population of Gaza leave Gaza and go to somewhere in the Sinai. Um, and uh, uh, and so we don't know really what is the uh, the detailed thinking of the Netanyahu government and the leaders of this. However, we do know in history that um, uh, that it is it is normal for the Allied bombers, the whether it's the Americans, whether it's the British, uh, whether it's the Germans, uh, um, to uh, mask their actual detailed operational thinking in kind of very high level language like national security, military. And then once you see get into the documents, you see, oh, they really are laying out rather uh, clear, coherent operational plans, which is what you would expect from professional militaries. When assessing the bombing campaign that has happened so far and its uh, failure, what do you think the key points people need to focus on are? I mean, for me, the big one is I don't think this is uh, it, it may have done heavy damage to Hamas, but it has not uh, destroyed Hamas's 
operational capabilities? The, the number one issue here is that the military campaign uh, and the military campaign alone is highly unlikely to defeat Hamas. And in fact, is likely producing more terrorists, uh, more anti-Israeli terrorists than it is killing. Um, and why is that? In order to defeat a terrorist group like Hamas, uh, the core thing that must happen is the terrorist group must be separated from the local population, not just in a tactical sense in the short term, ask them to move from one block to another, but long term so that as the terrorist fighters uh, are killed, they're not replaced by a larger, larger contingent of terrorist fighters that actually enlarge the threat over time. Now, in this case, the military campaign, both the air and the ground campaign by Israel, are not separating Hamas from the local population. They're fusing it tighter and tighter and tighter together. Um, and you see that whether uh, when you talk about the movement of a million people from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, well, Hamas just went with them in large numbers. And so this is a fusing of the population. The civilian casualties, moreover, those 18,000 that I mentioned that we know of that uh, have been killed, each of them have family members and friends, um, and those are now ripe recruits for that next generation of anti-Israeli terrorists in the future who are bent on revenge. And it's normal to have folks bent on revenge in these highly destructive uh uh, civilian punishment campaigns. Um, and well, so, yeah, real, look, go ahead. Real quick, what I was going to say is I mean, people have to think of it in terms of, and this is not a form of justification, but it's explanation is uh, let's say you're part of a Gazan family and a bomb ends up killing your mother, your your father, and your, your little sister. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that may animate someone to say, hey, I'm going to join Hamas to exact revenge for what they did to my family. You see, that, that's exactly it. So when I studied those 40 strategic bombing campaigns in the 20th century, I didn't just study how bombs were put on targets and how the campaigns were executed. I studied how the populations responded to those air attacks and how they responded was consistent over and over and over again, um, what happened, I call it the Pearl Harbor effect, where when the Japanese bombed uh, Americans in Pearl Harbor, this did not cause the American population in the continental United States to want to run away and, oh my goodness, we're terrified of the Japanese or we would side with them somehow. No, that produced the opposite. Um, and of course, when Hamas attacked uh, Israel and massacred those 1,200 uh, Israeli civilians on October 7th, that did not cause the Israeli population to cower and not want they wanted payback, and that they want payback a lot. When Al-Qaeda attacked America on 9-11 and killed 3,000 Americans here, this did not cause America to say, oh, my goodness, we're so terrified of Al-Qaeda, or, you know, maybe we should put bin Laden in the White House or something. No, the complete opposite. We conquered 
two Muslim countries fought 20-year forever wars because we're basically angry as a people. Um, and this was widely popular. All of those campaigns I mentioned and reactions here weren't just government decisions. They were widely popular with the body politic at the time. I guess this leads to the question of how could Israel have responded differently? Because a lot of people will bring that up to me. And I, I've said what you actually point out in the article is that, you know, maybe do surgical strikes, but maybe you could um, hone in more on what Israel could have done differently after October 7th and maybe how they can uh, course correct it now. One of the big things to recognize is that um, uh, after October 7th, Virtually every commentator agreed that one of the reasons Hamas attacked was because Hamas was afraid of the Abraham Accords, these accords by uh, Israel and the Arab governments to normalize relations with Israel that would effectively start to put Hamas out of business because it would create alternative, alternative peaceful pathways. And Hamas is, is completely opposed to that. So this was a reason why Hamas wanted to fight. Well, notice that Hamas is terrified of peaceful outcomes here. Um, and so... What does that mean in terms of uh, what the lesson we should have learned and the way to respond is, number one, um, targeted surgical air campaigns can have an important effect in diminishing fighters and leaders in a terrorist group, so long as those fighters who are killed are not replaced by a larger generation of, um, of fighters. So um, what should have happened here was a targeted surgical strike campaign that would go on for months and months and months, maybe even years against uh, Hamas leaders and fighters identified as having been involved with uh, October 7th, and at the same time creating genuine political alternatives to Hamas um, so that the civilian population, the Palestinians who were not pro Hamas would have somewhere else to go other than simply being now forced to be pro-Hamas. Uh, and so that's why I say it was imperative not to sequence this military and political uh, campaign as do the heavy military first, and then when you get around to it, create a path for a two-state solution, some other political. This was the giant mistake that Israel made. The way to go forward here was to have both a limited military campaign, surgical focused on Hamas, occur side by side with a double track, which was to create the pathway for a genuine Palestinian state. Now you're coming at Hamas from both sides. And this is really the real danger to Hamas, which is it's the political track that threatens to put Hamas out of business for good. That's why they struck it when the Abrahamic Accords were threatening to do that, and they wanted so much to get back on a war path. Well, this has just been mana for heaven for uh, uh, for Hamas, um, because now they're the game in town. Everybody's focusing on, uh, on Hamas. Uh, Hamas has now got 75% support of the Palestinians, when it only had 25% before October 7th. Um, and so what's really happening is we're failed right from the get-go to have learned the lessons of history about how to defeat a terrorist group like Hamas. I don't want to 
spend too much time on this, but since you mentioned the Abraham Accords, um, and there was also the the Saudi Israel normalization that was going on, uh, what I hear a lot is that the Abraham Accords and the Saudi Israel normalization actually was putting um, the Palestine issue and the issue of Palestinian self determination on the back burner. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I think that is uh, the first line of the rhetoric here on the back burner. But I think more specifically, it was the whole point of these accords was to create a peace, a peaceful set, a peaceful track. Um, and uh, Hamas is all about armed resistance. I mean, that that's the definition of that's how Hamas defines itself as an entity. Uh, and so what that means is if there's an actual genuine peaceful path here, you just don't need Hamas anymore. I mean, the the what we know about the Palestinians, we know uh, from uh, decades of public opinion surveys that have been done among uh, different organizations. And they all basically say the same thing, which is what the Palestinian people want first and foremost um, is a, a genuine um, state, uh, the state that is their own. Uh, th this is what Israel wanted in 1948, more than anything else, a genuine state that Israel could call its own. Well, the Palestinians really are uh, wanting the same thing. And then they're upset about other issues, such as corruption in the PA. Well, it's because that means they're not, the PA is not giving them that genuine alternative, or they're supporting Hamas because they don't see there's a peaceful path for that political alternative. But it's that political alternative that the Palestinian people want. That doesn't mean that's what Hamas wants. <laughs> Hamas is a terrorist group, um, and they're really, really, uh, their identity is all about the killing of Jews here. And I'm not denying that for a moment. In fact, that's the thing that I'm saying, that these alternatives I'm pointing out are the real way to defeat Hamas. One thing we have to talk about is, uh, you know, you, you lay out some ways in which Israel could course correct, uh, could show that they're wanting to change the framework and dy dynamics in the Israeli-Palestine uh, relationship. Uh, you know, you note that they could set up, you know, milestones that would have to be reached by, say, 2030, um, or uh, uh, multiple milestones that would lead up to something in 2030. Uh, but, but you do say at a certain point, this is not likely the course that Israel will take, especially under Netanyahu. So where do you see the role is of, of the U.S. being in all of this? Um, I think it's really important for the United States uh, to use influence uh, here and persuasive influence because we have tremendous information tools that we can bring uh, that are really important here. As I go around over the last few months, whether I'm speaking to Jewish groups, uh, uh, um, uh, Muslim groups, or uh, mixed groups, there's a tremendous lack of knowledge, even among Jewish groups, by the way, of things like the Israeli-Jewish uh, settler movement, and just how much that has been going on since the early 1980s. You see, in order to understand uh, whether or not an, uh, a pathway to a two-state solution is viable, and then what? Uh, how you would get there, you need to really understand what are the core reasons why that has been broken. 
Uh, and there are many reasons. I'm not going to deny diploma diplomacy hasn't worked. I'm not going to deny incompetence by different leaders. But one of the core, core statistics and facts to understand why the um, the two-state solution has gone nowhere is simply to recognize that since the early 1980s, Israel has been adding 10,000 Jewish settlers virtually every year for over 40 years into the Palestinian territories, and there has not been any Palestinians living in the Jewish territories here. This has been a one-sided movement, which today there's now over a half million, and I'm not even counting East Jerusalem. So this is a massive movement by Jewish settlers um, into uh, Palestinian territories. I've been to Israel in December 2019. I've gone to the West Bank. I've visited Jewish settlers here. Uh, I visited the wineries here by the Jewish settlers. So um, I was on the ground uh, here. And what you what you see is that um, this was happening, this continuous movement of Jewish settlers in the Palestinian lands during the Oslo Accords, during the so-called peace process. Well, it's no wonder if after over 40 years, Palestinians look at this and they say, my goodness, all this has meant is loss of land for the Palestinians. Why should they believe that this is actually a genuine uh, uh, you know, negotiation for a two-state solution? Since all that's happening is they're losing land every day, every day, every day for 40 years. So that's why everything I said in that piece about the milestones and so forth really centers around freezing and stopping the settler movement, and not just for a month or two, and not as like, we're going to negotiate this down the road. Yes, we'll get to that five years later. No, this is the upfront down payment that I think uh, Israel uh, has to make in order to clarify they really are credibly committed to a two-state solution. And so I'm saying they should freeze the settler movement through 2030 almost six years, over six years. And then that, I think, um, we're really going to find out if this two-state solution is possible or not. But this is what it would take to really give it a real chance. I think sometimes this may be hard for people to wrap their head around that, um, you know, since, as you point out, uh, since the Likud party came to power in 1977, were one of the first times they came into power, there's been a major expansion of settlements. So I, I think some people will read news articles about settler violence today and think this is a completely new phenomena. But the, the settler movement has been around for years. And I, I really want to hone in on that because I, it, I feel like people don't realize decade, that. Decade and decade. So um, Israel took possession of the West Bank and Gaza after the 1967 war. And for almost 13 years, the relations between the Palestinians and Israel were extremely positive, extremely benign. There were hundreds of thousands, that is like 20% of the Palestinian workforce working in Israel on a given day or a given week during this 13 years. This wasn't just a few thousand. Um, and in fact, many people were, were saying, academics wrote books about, well, there's no actual nationalism among Palestinians. There's a whole set of academic uh, books about the absence of violence and the absence of this. Well, this changes as uh, the Likud government uh, makes a real plan, a commitment in 
1947 to expand the settler movement. And then a few years later, it doesn't happen like literally on a dime, but it does by uh, 1979, you start seeing every year 10,000. That's there were we're only a few thousand as Jewish settlers in the Palestinian territories up until that point. Every year for over 40 years, uh, there's like one or two years where this pauses, but it's temporary. And and so what you are seeing is um, uh, a massive movement and expansion of the Jewish settler movement. Um, and that's also why uh, this concept paper that we mentioned earlier in the show by the ministers in the Netanyahu cabinet are calling for the not just the expulsion and cleansing of Gazans, uh, Palestinians out of Gaza, but the massive resettlement of Jews into Gaza. And why when Israel just a few days ago raised the Israeli flag over Gaza, this is again in line with the idea that, oh, uh, this is really just going to be the massive resettlement of Jews into more and more Palestinian territory. Just one or two more things here. In terms of how the U.S. could apply uh, pressure to, say, Netanyahu's government, uh, what what ways could the White House apply the, pressure? The, the absolute crucial thing is a national conversation on the issues we're having right now. So let's just imagine that this conversation we're having was happening for 30 minutes that is being covered on CNN in the White House. Let's imagine that this is covered here for for uh, uh, four or five days of hearings uh, among in Congress. This is what what we we have the the information about what is really been occurring over the the last uh, four or five decades here is crucial to bring to the public. And we have the ability as a government, as a media to really make that happen. But that's what I mean by influence. I mean that and, and it's important because it's really is important to have a serious national debate about what is in what what strategy really is in Israel's national security interest. Just two more things in that regard, and, and then I will let you go because I know you're short on time. But, um, you know, I, I interviewed a Palestinian historian recently, uh, Rashid Halidi, who said to me that uh, the approach that Israel, especially under Netanyahu, has taken is this idea of well, we can maintain security by making another population feel extremely insecure. And I think what October 7th revealed is that that strategy is not going to work long run. And it's not good for what's weird. What's interesting is it's not good for Gazans, but it's also not good for Israelis. That's exactly right. So I've known Rashid for many decades. Um, he was at Chicago when I came to Chicago in 1999 before he went to Columbia. Um, and his book um, on Palestinian nationalism is that turning point book that is really showing how uh, as the settler movement, as Hamas is forming in reaction to that movement, you're getting Palestinian nationalism. And it's not uh, as you said, the real tragedy here is that um, the idea that just the more damage you do to Palestinians, the more this is good for Israel's security. 
is just simply um, a myth. Uh, what we see uh, over and over is that the more Israel has relied on a massive, heavy punishment or heavy military strategy against terrorists, the more they've produced more. In fact, where did Hezbollah come from? Your audience might like to know. It came as a reaction to Israel's massive invasion of southern Lebanon in June 82 with 78,000 combat soldiers, 3,000 tanks and armored vehicles against the PLO. One month later, Hezbollah, which didn't even exist, was born and they began doing suicide attacks shortly thereafter, which the PLO had never done. And Hezbollah is stronger today than ever. The very last thing I wanted to touch upon, um, you know, I've done a few shows on issues of terrorism and counterterrorism. I recently had um, Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer on, who's done work on uh, religious terrorism. I know terrorism. Mark very well. Well, it's, it's <laughs> interesting because... Uh, you know, I think people get the impression that Mark is saying it's all religion, that's all terrorism, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the sort of um, religious symbology and, and imagery can animate a lot of terrorists, but he's not saying it's simply just a matter of religion. So the question I want to ask you here at the end is when you're introducing uh, people to this topic, maybe even students, uh, to this topic of terrorism, and they have it in their head, it's all just about religion and religious extremism, how do you get them to maybe think about it in a different way or look at the data showing that, hey, there's more to this than religion? The Tamil Tigers, the world's leader in suicide terrorism from the early 1980s to 2005, was not an Islamic fundamentalist group, was not a Muslim group. They were the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, which was a Marxist, read anti-religious suicide terrorist group. In fact, they had many Hindus and Catholics in their mix. The Tamil Tigers did more suicide attacks than Hamas and Islamic Jihad combined. And they were the deadliest uh, suicide terrorist group here. And so it's important to see there are many secular suicide terrorist groups. They don't happen to have been the ones attacking Israel or attacking the United States. So we've tended to put blinders on. But it's important to understand that the terrorism phenomenon here is very heavily what makes a terrorist is not the religion, although there are a few that that's true. What mostly makes a terrorist is you take their land away. Take their land away, and that makes people very, very much wanting to fight. Uh, and that's something you can think about as uh, explaining a lot of the freedom fighter versus terrorist debate that we've had over the decades. I was just going to add to that. That even comes up in, I mean, I know there's been a lot about the renewed interest in the bin laden letter and i i just think it's interesting because he it does seem like even these al-qaeda types talk about like oh there's military bases here they're occupying here it does seem like land has a lot to but, do but with it bin laden understood very clearly was his best recruitment tool was u.s military bases on sunni muslim countries he did get a few others besides that to join this very evil group, by the way. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not uh, morally justifying their violence uh, here. But what what he did is he clearly understood. And in fact, the Al Qaeda recruitment videos um, here for, in fact, like um, including the ones that show the 9-11 hijackers here uh, before.
before the you know the martyr videos they made that were shown after their death they heavily emphasize uh u.s military bases in saudi arabia other muslim countries they show george the first george bush going and visiting the bases waving american flags in saudi arabia here this is what they understand is what recruits for them better than anything else it's just a shame that it takes the target society so long to figure out what the terrorists already know, which in is a way it's almost how to recruit. In a way, it's almost like they're setting a trap, right? They, they, like, um, you know, the logic of terrorism uh, would say, well, I want them to uh, respond indiscriminately because that'll create more recruits for us. It, it is. It's called a bait and bleed strategy. The idea here with terrorism is often to provoke the democracy by attacking the civilians of the democracy. So the democracy will overreact. You kind of bait the democracy and then they overreact so you can bleed the democracy white with a larger recruitment force later. So that's exactly what appears to have been Hamas's strategy. So we know at my center, the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats, I have an Arabic propaganda analysis team. There are propaganda videos by Hamas about their October 7 attack, explaining they're hoping for Israel to come and respond. So this idea that they're surprised, this is what we said about bin Laden, that, oh, he's going to be so surprised. He's completely hoping for this massive overreaction because the groups are so small on their own. They can't help help to grow. They can't hope to grow very much. The way the little group can give the big Goliath a bloody nose is if Goliath is baited into helping the group recruit. And that's what terrorists, the goal of terrorism is often simply recruitment. And the best way to recruit is to get the democracy to attack and kill your civilians. Well, Robert A. Pape, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, 30 seconds or less here. What do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation we've been having? I hope they get that there really is an alternative strategy that can make the security of both Palestinians and Israelis greater. It is not the case that we have to live in this spiral of conflict. There really can be an alternative here. And if with better understanding, we can get to that alternative. That's the real strength of democracy. And we need to lean into that strength. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robert A. Pape. And that you'll consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show afloat. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. But otherwise, this show is entirely listener-supported. So, if you can, go over to patreon.com slash parallaxviews and kick in some financial support for yours truly. And with that being said, until next time, 
You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.